United Press International, Dateline, Fort Worth, Texas. The story of four days that shock the world. Friday, November 22nd, 1963. The first day begins at an early morning breakfast meeting. President Kennedy greets an overflow audience. Two years ago, I said that, uh, introduced myself in Paris by saying that I was the man who had accompanied uh, Mrs. Kennedy to Paris. I'm getting that somewhat that same sensation uh, as I travel around uh, Texas. Nobody wonders what Lyndon and I wear. I'm confident. The president speaks about Fort Worth's role in our military and space efforts. And then he concludes. ...better than they've been in the past. And the reason is because we're stronger. And with that strength is a determination to not only maintain the peace, but also the vital interest of the United States. To that great cause, Texas and the United States are committed. Thank you. Mr. Kennedy is presented with a 10-gallon hat, and the crowd wants him to put it on. I'll put it on in the uh, White House on Monday. If you'll come up there, you'll have a chance to see it there. A short flight to Love Field at Dallas. Arrival time, 11.37 the same morning. It looks like a police convention. We have never seen as many Dallas police officers in one location in all of our years of covering Dallas news, but they are here in great profusion. The security precautions at this luncheon they're going to attend range from the distance from the president's car door to the trademark entrance and to how many doors and windows are in the building, and even the method of selecting the state the president will eat. And here is the presidential jet. U.S. Air Force number one, printed on the side, and the crowd begins its cheer, which you can't hear over the whistle and hum of the jets, but handkerchiefs are being waved, the placards are being held high, and hundreds of tiny American flags are now being waved toward the presidential jet. The doors fly open, and the loading ladders are being wheeled into place. This is a split-second timed operation for the Secret Service and the Air Force and the Signal Corps. Nothing left to chance. Every possible precaution has been taken. The reception line is formed, and there is Mrs. Kennedy, the First Lady, stepping from the plane, wearing a bright pink suit with a dark fur collar and a matching pink hat, and the President, wearing a dark suit, steps off directly behind. Mrs. Kennedy has been presented her bouquet of brilliant red roses, and they make a lovely contrast to the bright pink suit she is wearing. The weather couldn't be better. We have a brilliant sun at this moment. The wind has diminished considerably, and it has turned into a comfortable situation for the hundreds of people who came here to Dallas Love Field to witness the arrival of the president and his first lady. Now, those of you who are waiting along the parade route uh, just to be sure that you find yourself in the proper location, let's give it to you once again. The party is now ready to depart Love Field. It will go Mockingbird Lane to Lemon Avenue, then travel south on Lemon to Turtle Creek, Cedar Springs, 
through the downtown area on Harwood to Maine, west on Maine to Houston, through the triple underpass to Stemmons Freeway, then on to the trademark. The president's car is being delayed momentarily. We can't see from here exactly what is holding it up, but this is the moment where the Secret Service has its point of tension, as we have talked with many of these Secret Service men in the past few days who've arranged for the president's security. They say, when the president stops moving, that's when we're concerned, because that is when the possibility of trouble comes to the forefront. And here comes the president now. In fact, he's not in his limousine. He's departed the limousine, and he is walking. He is reaching across the fence, shaking hands, shaking hands with many of the people who have come here to see him. He is closely accompanied by Dallas police officers and, of course, the Secret Service. But Mr. Kennedy stepped out of the automobile. He is now shaking hands. Mrs. Kennedy is right behind him, and they are walking along the line of the fence, shaking hands with some of the hundreds of people who have come here to view their arrival. Thousands of children now swarming, trying to get over the fence. The Dallas police trying to keep them back. And the security is tense at this time, but is going beautifully. And now the president and first lady are retreating from the fence. They're heading now for the official limousine where Governor Connolly stands waiting their arrival so that they can make their way downtown and out to the trademark. But this was one of those impromptu moments for which President Kennedy is so well known so many times you have heard that the Secret Service men suddenly find themselves without the president, that suddenly he has left them and stepped into the crowd, the milling throng, and decided to shake hands and give his personal greetings. And this, once again, he did. There's the gunmetal gray limousine, blue and gray, pulling away now from the fenced area. The president and Mrs. Kennedy seated on the back seat, Governor and Mrs. Connolly on the second seats or jump seats, and then the official driver and Secret Service men are in the front seat. A flying wedge of some one dozen Dallas police motorcycles leading the way, and the pace is picking up as they head for the departure gate and the trip downtown to the trademark. A mobile radio unit on the scene picks up the story. The president's car is now turning onto Elm Street, and it will be only a matter of minutes before he arrives at the trademark. I was on Stemmons Freeway earlier, and even the freeway was jam-packed with spectators waiting their chance to see the president as he made his way toward the trademark. It appears as though something has happened in the motorcade route. Something, I repeat, has happened in the motorcade route. There's numerous people running up the hill alongside Elm Street, there by the Stimmons Freeway. Several police officers are rushing up the hill at this time. Stand by just a moment, please. Something has happened in the motorcade route. Stand by, please. Parkland Hospital, there has been a shooting. Parkland Hospital has been advised to stand by for a severe gunshot wound. I repeat, a shooting in the motorcade in the downtown area. Parkland Hospital has been advised to stand by for a severe gunshot wound. The president's car is now going past me. The limousine is now traveling at a very high rate of speed. Secret Service men standing up in the limousine. They are armed with submachine guns. It appears as though someone in the limousine might have been hit by the gunfire. Put me on, Phil. Put me on. Phil, am I on? 
trademark. The motorcade is coming by here. I can see many, many motorcycles coming by now. Police motorcycles. Just heard a call on the radio for all units along Industrial to pick up the motorcade. Something has happened here. We understand there has been a shooting. The presidential car coming up now. We know it's the presidential car. You can see Mrs. Kennedy's pink suit. There's a Secret Service man spread eagle over the top of the car. We understand Governor and Mrs. Connolly are in the car with President and Mrs. Kennedy. We can't see who has been hit, if anybody's been hit, but apparently something is wrong here. Something is terribly wrong. I'm in behind the motorcade, trying to follow them. It looks as though they're going to Parkland Hospital. We're on the road to Parkland at this time. The Secret Service man is still spread eagle over whoever is in the car, the President and Mrs. Kennedy, and as we understand, Governor and Mrs. Connolly. At this point, it looks as though it could have been one or two or even all of the people within the car may have been the victims, may have been struck by shots. We don't know. Parkland Hospital in the distance. Now we're on Harry Hines Boulevard, following behind the motorcade. Many, many police officers, maybe 20 or 25 motorcycle policemen, falling in behind at trademark. A huge crowd left behind, waiting expectantly to see the president. The motorcade now, motorcade now perhaps two or three blocks ahead of me. They're approaching the entrance now to Parkland Hospital, traveling at a high rate of speed. Ready police cars converging on Parkland from every angle, from every point. I'm pulling in now toward Parkland Hospital, coming to the approach. There's an officer waving me down. He's waving me around. There's a cordon. There's already a cordon of police officers running from their cars, from their vehicles here. The official party, as I can see it, pulling around toward the emergency room of Parkland Hospital. The policeman says, no, you cannot come in here. You cannot come in here. We'll let nobody else in. I'm going to try to go around to the back of Parkland. I'm going around now, and I will try to get around to the back of Parkland and find out more details. It was definitely the president's car. We could see the first lady's pink suit. That's the only identification we could see, but we know it is the president's car. Another car directly behind the presidential car. There were also parties in that car. Another Secret Service man spread eagle over them. We don't know. Perhaps there were some hit in that car as well. We're not sure. Coming around behind Parkland Hospital, more details as we have them. Ron Jenkins, KBOX Mobile Unit. Number six. This is Pierce Allman from the Texas School Book Depository Building for WFAA News. Just a few minutes ago, the President of the United States turned from Houston Street onto Elm Street on his way to a scheduled luncheon appearance at the Stemmons Trademark. And as he went by the Texas School Book Depository, headed for the triple underpass, there were three loud reverberating explosions. Nobody moved. Everyone seemed stunned. A few seemed to look around, wondering who has the firecrackers. Then suddenly the Secret Service men sprang into action. The convertible bearing the President and Mrs. Kennedy sped away, and officers, both plainclothes and uniformed, seemed to spring from everywhere at once, guns drawn, ordering people to lie flat. There are two witnesses who were near the President's car at the time of the explosions who say that shots were fired from which upper window we do not know. We do not and cannot confirm the reports at this time that the President has been shot. One witness says he definitely was shot, that he was hit twice, that he saw the President slump in his seat. As I say, this is not confirmed at this time. From where I am, the police have two witnesses. They are bringing them in now. I'm in the Texas School Book Depository Building. They're bringing some witnesses in now. We will try to learn further and relay word to the station. Jenkins at Parkland Hospital, and here everybody's talking about a tragedy that should never have happened. We've received first unconfirmed reports as to conditions of President Kennedy and Governor Ralph, or rather Governor John Connolly. 
And just now we've received reports here at Parkland that Governor Connolly was shot in the upper left chest, and the first unconfirmed reports say the president was hit in the head. That's an unconfirmed report that the president was hit in the head. The president's wife, Jackie Kennedy, was not hurt. She walked into the hospital at her husband's stretcher side. And a Dallas newsman, Mel Couch, said he was riding shortly behind the president in the parade. He said after the shots were fired, he happened to look up at about the fifth or sixth floor of the Texas Book Depository. He said he saw the rifle being pulled back in. Down base KBOX Mobile News Unit number four here at the Texas School Book Depository where the area being completely roped off by Dallas police, the K-9 units here at the scene. I don't know what for, but a fire truck is standing by. Most of the officers, literally hundreds of them, armed with sawed-off shotguns, shotguns, pump shotguns, automatic shotguns, and submachine guns. President Kennedy has been given a blood transfusion at Parkland Hospital here in Dallas in an effort to save his life after he and Governor John Conley of Texas were shot in an assassination attempt in downtown Dallas. A priest has been ordered, emergency supplies of blood also being rushed. The An eyewitness tells what he saw. The rifle was drawn from the window. I happened to be about 15 feet away from uh, the president when the first shot hit him. Uh, there is some discussion now as to whether there was one or two shots that hit him, but the first shot rang out, and I was positive when I saw the look on his face and saw him grab his chest and saw the reaction of his wife that he had been shot. And just at that time, which was probably a, a few seconds later, the second shot rang out and he just absolutely went down into the seat of the car. Uh, there was a third shot that went and by that time I had grabbed my little five-year-old boy who was with me and ran away uh, from the scene of the thing. But uh, the only thing that I did witness and, and something I'm sorry I did witness very honestly was that the, the look on his face when that shot hit and the look again on, on him and his wife's face when uh, the shot started to ring out and it was very obviously that he was hit. The the first two shots that uh, that were heard and uh, the first one hit the president. There was no doubt whatsoever because he, his face winced and he grabbed at himself and he slumped down. I do believe without any doubt that the second one hit him because he had an immediate reaction with that second shot. I do know there was a third shot, but as I say, by that time I had grabbed my boy and started to go. I did not witness uh, Governor Conley uh, being hit. The shots apparently came from the fifth floor of the Texas Bookstore Depository Building, possibly from an automatic type weapon. Police were looking for a young white man dressed in a white shirt with Levi's carrying a lever-action type rifle. One witness told reporters that he had seen the rifle disappearing from that window after the shots were fired. Senator Ralph Yarbrough told a KBOX reporter that he was riding three cars behind the president's car when he heard three distinct rifle shots. The motorcade then increased in speed, running to Parkland Hospital. Just a moment, just a moment, we have a bulletin coming in. We now switch you directly to Parkland Hospital and KBOX News Director Bill Hampton. The President of the United States is dead. I have just talked to Father Oscar Hubert of the Holy Trinity Catholic Church. He and another priest tell me that the pair of men have just administered the last rites of the Catholic Church to President Kennedy. I asked the Father, is Mr. Kennedy dead? And his quote, he's dead all right. And just a few seconds ago, I talked to Thurman Ward, the Justice of the Peace of Garland. He's now here at the hospital to apparently officially
shock, some fainted. Grown men, Secret Service men standing by the emergency room, tears streaming down their face. There's only one word to describe the picture here, and that's grief, and much of it. It's official, as of just a few moments ago. The President of the United States is dead. Friday is a day of disaster. The world is in shock. An ambulance driver is interviewed. Dennis, what happened to the hearse? We were standing by there, and the, one of the Secret Service men come up and uh, told us that we would have to help uh, putting the president into the casket and getting him to the airport before we put the president in his casket. Well, uh, the president's wife placed her, took her, her wedding band, it, it looked to be like her wedding band, off of her finger and put it on the president's and kissed his hand. With Mrs. Kennedy aboard the presidential jet is Merriman Smith of UPI, Dean of the White House Correspondents. A Dallas police officer drove me from the hospital to the airport, and I went aboard Air Force One. The large center cabin was darkened, all shades drawn, members of the Kennedy staff sitting stunned, staring straight ahead, some crying softly. Sarah T. Hughes, 67-year-old federal judge, old friend of the Johnsons, rushed in a special car to the big white ramp at the front of Air Force One. Someone pressed a small black Bible into the hands of the judge as she went aboard. Secret Service agents gently placed the coffin in the rear cabin of the plane, a cabin, incidentally, which served as the living room for the president and his family when they were airborne. Jackie went to a small bedroom. She wanted a few moments to compose herself. Then Mrs. Kennedy walked down the narrow corridor from her bedchamber and into the lounge. She was dry-eyed, but her face was a, a mask of shock. As a man might lead a small child, Johnson took her hand and led Jackie to a place at his left side. Mrs. Johnson stood at his right. Johnson then nodded to the judge, and thus a new chapter of American history began. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute started the engines of the big gleaming silver and blue fan jet, and in another few minutes, Air Force One roared down the Dallas runway. Once the plane was airborne, the Johnsons settled down in the lounge where the swearing-in ceremony had taken place. Mrs. Kennedy left her bedroom again and walked slowly down the corridor to the rear cabin. She sat down beside the coffin, and there she remained throughout the flight, never more than a matter of inches from her husband's body. As Air Force One sped toward the nation's capital, Johnson got to work with members of his staff. He drafted what was to be his first public statement. Then he placed a special radio telephone call to Mrs. Rose Kennedy, the late president's mother. By this time, it was dark. We could see the lights of Andrews Air Force Base coming up fast. We put down for a glass-smooth landing at 5.59 Washington time. Then the plan, bringing it down 
onto the field of Andrews Air Force Base. A Navy Honor Guard alongside. Mrs. Kennedy is now coming down following the casket. With her, other members of the Kennedy family, the Attorney General can be seen. Mrs. Jacqueline Kennedy accompanying the body of her husband. Navy ambulance pulls away from... President Johnson makes his first public statement. This is a sad time for all people. We have suffered a loss that cannot be weighed. For me, it is a deep personal tragedy. I know that the world shares the sorrow that Mrs. Kennedy and her family bear. I will do my best. That is all I can do. I ask for your help and God's. Officer J.D. Tibbet was killed attempting to arrest Lee Harvey Oswald. In Dallas, a policeman tells how Oswald was finally captured. We received information he was in the Texas theater. We went to this location, surrounded it from the outside, and then about eight officers, including one FBI agent and some uniform officers, went into the location. And Officer Ennium McDonald was interrogating his third person when, as he approached him, the suspect jumped up, struck him in the face, and yelled, this is it, uh, and made a grab for a pistol, which was inside his shirt, down in his belt. The officer and the suspect both began to grapple for the pistol. The pistol trigger was pulled one time, but the gun misfired. By then, at the officer's call, the rest of us got into the situation and uh, subdued the suspect, disarmed him, handcuffed him, put him in the car from the station and turned him over to Captain Fritz and the Homicide Bureau. It was a calculating man who slew the President of these United States today. He had to be. The shots that killed the President and severely wounded the Governor of Texas came from a predetermined spot with a clear view of the motorcade as it passed. There was evidence the gunman sat and calmly gnawed fried chicken while waiting for the moment to shoot. Against the wall. These people have given me a hearing without legal representation or anything. Did you shoot the president? I didn't shoot anybody, no, sir. 24-year-old accused presidential assassin Lee Harvey Oswald is feeling the noose of guilt drawing tighter around his neck. He has good reason to believe and does believe that one Lee Harvey Oswald after style defendant heretofore on or about the 22nd day of November AD 1963 in the county of Dallas and state of Texas did then and there unlawfully voluntarily and with malice aforethought kill John Kennedy by shooting him with a gun. Dallas County District Attorney Henry Wade has made the statement that he will personally prosecute the accused man for the murder of the president. Wade has tried 24 murder cases in his career obtaining the death penalty in 23 of those cases. The 24th defendant was sentenced to life in prison. Carl King reporting from Dallas. This is Joe Long in Dallas. And here are the latest breaking developments in the story surrounding yesterday's assassination of President Kennedy. Homicide Captain Will Fritz of Dallas told us just a few moments ago, this case is cinched. I cannot say more about the evidence, but the case is cinched. This is the man who killed President Kennedy. There is an underlying tension here in Dallas. It's not something you can put your hand on, you can see or touch, but it is here. Veteran newsmen feel it, 
They hesitate to leave the press room here in the city hall for even a moment because it's there. There is talk here in the press room on the pros and cons of possible mob action against Oswald. Someone said there are strong feelings in the state in that direction. Yet Dallas this Sunday morning is quiet. The streets are vacant of all except an occasional early morning motorist. And the nation waits while the ponderous wheels of justice grind their course in the case of Lee Harvey Oswald, accused assassin. Carl King reporting from Dallas. Sunday, the third day, as Jacqueline Kennedy prepares to leave the White House for ceremonies at the Capitol Rotunda, Lee Harvey Oswald is being transferred from the basement of the city jail to the county jail. Ike Pappas, WNEW New York, is on the scene. Yeah, he's got to be here. There he is. Now the prisoner uh, wearing a black sweater, he has changed from his T-shirt, is being uh, moved out toward an armored car, being let out by uh, Captain Fritz. There is the prisoner. Do you have anything to say in your defense? There is a shot. Oswald has been shot. Oswald has been shot. A shot rang out. Mass confusion here. All the doors have been locked. Holy mackerel. A shot rang out as he was led into his car. The shot, there's a mass confusion there, rolling and fighting. As he was being let out, now he's being led back. He was thrown to the ground. The police have the entire area blocked off. Everybody stay back. There's the yell. Did you see it? Eh? What happened? Yeah, I saw the guy. There's a man, a rather stocky man with a hat on. A dark... Um, stocky man with a hat yeah, on? he rushed, he crushed, and he shot him there. And I saw the flash, and the Oswald said, oh, and that's it. Oswald doubled over. There was a big struggle on the ground. Just a moment earlier, I had, no doubt foolishly, jumped in front of him to get in the last question to ask him what happened, whether he had anything to say in his defense. And then, a split second later, the shot rang out. I thought he was one of the detectives, you know, he had a hat right. uh, and uh, he was well that's what I remember. Had you seen him before? Had you seen him before? I think he had his hat. There were, there were none of us in this area. One of the wildest scenes I've ever seen. Let me see if I can reconstruct it. Lee Harvey Oswald was coming out in a garage in the police headquarters at Dallas. He was being let out by Captain Fritz, who had been interrogating him for two days. He was wearing a black sweater. There were a mass of reporters and cameramen. We were all lined up. I was directly opposite uh, Oswald. And as Oswald came out, I leaped forward and I said, do you have anything to say in your defense? Immediately after that, the shot rang out. There was a man posing as a reporter in the crowd here. Somehow he got in. Somehow he got through the police protection and police cordons. And now the, uh, an ambulance is uh, being rushed in here. Here is the ambulance. Screaming red lights, people, policemen. Let me get back over here. An ambulance uh, has arrived. They are rushing a mobile stretcher in. Oswald is, was carried back into the uh, hallway. 
Here is young Oswald now. He is being hustled in. He is lying flat. He, to me, he appears dead. There is a gunshot wound in his lower abdomen. He is white. Pull the top down there, yelling. Here's the driver. Let the driver by. Oswald, white, lying in the ambulance. His head is back. He is out, unconscious. Dangling, his hand is dangling over the uh, edge of the stretcher. And now the ambulance is moving out. The flashing red lights. Detective hopped in. Oswald rushed out of here. Tremendous struggle on the ground. As uh, Oswald doubled up, now he's off to uh, the hospital, Parkland Hospital, we believe. Here are some police officials. Who was he? Jack Ruby is the name. Jack Ruby? Ruby. Carousel Club. He runs the Carousel Club? He handed me that card the other day. He was in... What did he say? He was in the carousel... He was in the uh, headquarters here. This gentleman doesn't move out of the night yet. I know him. What did he say? I got a card from him the other day. Here he is. Jack Ruby. Is this him? Carousel Club? That's him. Yeah. Okay. Jack Ruby. I see him around several Are you sure of that? He's been looking at the chief. Who's going to give a complete briefing on this Chief Curry, head office on the third floor. Jack Ruby, who we noticed the other day, he was hanging around the uh, police headquarters. Apparently, he's very well known here. And uh, he was in the offices and mingling around. And now, so we understand, he has shot Oswald. Holy mackerel. One of the most sensational developments in this already fantastic case. Carl King reporting from Parkland Hospital in Dallas, the same hospital, the mortally wounded President John Fitzgerald Kennedy was taken after his assassination Friday. Today, another man is there. Twelve doctors are working on Oswald. He is receiving basically the same treatment that President Kennedy received in a nearby emergency room. They have taken him up to surgery and that he is, according to our administrator, Mr. Blacker, he is in very serious condition. This is Bill Hampton in the KPOX newsroom. We go immediately to Dick Moore at Parkland Hospital. Go ahead. Well, Lee Oswald is dead. Dr. Tom Shires made the announcement in a press conference just moments ago that he died at about 106. Again, Lee Oswald, 24 years old, accused assassin of President John Fitzgerald Kennedy, died at 106 at Parkland Hospital. Saturday, the body lay in repose in the east room of the White House as a persistent rain sighed through the bare branches of the elms and spattered on the window panes. Sunday, November 24th, a sunny, cold day. At five minutes past one o'clock, they carried the casket to a military caisson waiting at the north portico of the mansion. Mrs. Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy stood on the steps heavy black lace falling from her hair, holding Caroline with her left hand and John Jr. with her right. 
there came the sound of muffled drums and tens of thousands packed six deep along the avenues of presidents listened with a sense of dread. The drums rolling, beating, enveloped in black, the 100 paces a minute march, only slightly faster than the heartbeat of a man. A company of Navy enlisted men, the honor guard, the nation's flag, the clergy, and then seven matched white horses drawing the caisson. Upon it, instead of the cannon a caisson is built for, the coffin of John Fitzgerald Kennedy, two black bands holding an American flag tightly to it. And behind, in tradition that reaches back as far as man's military memory, a dark horse, no rider, a saber swinging at its side, boots turned backward in the stirrups. As they passed by, military men in the crowd snapped to attention and saluted. Women wept. Up Pennsylvania Avenue to Constitution, the east steps of the Capitol, and one last hail to the chief. Capitol Rotunda, where the coffin was placed on the black catafalque where Lincoln's rested nearly a century ago. And it was the occasion for some remarks. Chief Justice Earl Warren addressed himself to the subject attending these past 48 hours. What moved some misguided wretch to do this horrible deed may never be known to us. But we do know that such acts are commonly stimulated by forces of hatred and malevolence such as today are eating their way into the bloodstream of American life. What a price we pay for this fanaticism. It has been said that the only thing we learn from history is that we do not learn. But surely we can learn if we have the will to do so. Surely there is a lesson to be learned from this tragic event. The eulogy had come from Mike Mansfield, majority leader of the Senate. There was the sound of laughter, and in a moment, it was no more. And so, she took a ring from her finger and placed it in his hands. There was a wit in a man, neither young nor old, but a wit full of an old man's wisdom and a child's wisdom. 
And then, in a moment, it was no more. And so she took a ring from her finger and placed it in his hands. There was a man marked with the scars of his love of country, a body active with the surge of a life, far from spent. And in a moment, it was no more. And so she took a ring from her finger and placed it in his hands. There was a father with a little boy and a little girl and the joy of each in the other and in a moment it was no more. And so she took a ring from her finger and placed it in his hands. There was a husband who asked much and gave much, and out of the giving and the asking, wove with a woman what could not be broken in life, and in a moment it was no more. And so she took a ring from her finger and placed it in his hands and kissed him and closed the lid of the coffin. A piece of each of us died at that moment. And they walked from the rotunda, leaving the casket, its honor guard, and 250,000 persons filing by through the night. Among them, at midnight, unnoticed, a woman in black, Mrs. Jacqueline Kennedy, who would not yet say goodbye. Monday, November 25th, the world said goodbye. The caisson retraces its path from the rotunda of the Capitol down the broad avenues to the White House for the last time. From there, Jacqueline Kennedy followed the caisson on foot. And behind her, there emerged from the White House gate the greatest assemblage of leaders in the history of the New World. They had come to Washington from the farthest corners of the earth. They walked together to St. Matthew's Cathedral. Here is Jacqueline Kennedy in view. She appears to be weeping. Her entire head is draped in black lace. On her right is Senator Kennedy. On her left, the Attorney General, Robert Kennedy. Right behind her is uh, her brother-in-law, our Sergeant Shriver. The President and Mrs. Johnson have walked up behind her. The official party is now entering the St. Matthew's Cathedral here. Thank you, Dante Evangelii, Segunda Milana. 
Inside the cathedral, there stands a little boy. He is three years old on this day, November 25th. He moves a pace apart from his mother and lifts his hand. A toy soldier, he seems, saluting his father and his flag one last time. And then the procession moves out black limousines that stretch for miles, winding from the cathedral, around the memorial to Lincoln, across the Potomac, and up a hillside in Virginia to Arlington, the eternal home of heroes. The casket being brought to the grave now. Now. with 
their differences as General de Gaulle standing in the front row. Some the closest of friends. All paying their respects to a great the shots ring out across the roll 